Welcome to the Championship Club podcast. I'm your host, Michael Casey, and co-hosting with me is a man with over 300 Championship Rugby appearances. It's Ben Gulliver. Be sure to check us out on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and head to YouTube to like and subscribe to the channel. So, Gully, episode two of the uh, Championship Clubs podcast, which is fantastic news because it means that someone must have listened last week and they, they want us back on. H- how has your week been? Mate, it's been, it's been really good. Really pleased that we've got to uh, episode two. And uh, like you say, someone must be listening. But it's, it's been really nice, actually. That's some really good feedback. There's, been, there's guys that I've played with over the years I've not heard from in a long time. And they've, they've been dropping into either an Instagram or, or my Twitter feed and just sort of saying, well done, it's... It's nice to hear someone talking positively about a championship and it's just nice to also just to hear from those people again and uh you know this this is this was the aim of the aim of the podcast was to just sort of try and promote positive stories about the champ and i think Paige did a great job of that last week uh yeah he certainly did um so no pressure but i'm delighted to say that the uh, the guests we've got lined up for week two you know a man that i think couldn't fit the bill for what the championship club's podcast needs uh, just celebrated his 100th game with Coventry. He's also played 100 games at, Bev- uh, at Bedford prior to that and obviously ex-Leicester Tigers Academy. Phil Bolton, thank you very much for coming on the show. Cheers, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was good to listen to you last week. Really enjoyed enjoyed the show and you know what you guys are doing for the Championship has certainly been needed for a while. Mike, you've had an error, mate, already. It's 200 games for Bedford. Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> That's introduction and we're already off to a bad start. 200 games for Bedford, but indeed celebrated your 100th game for Cov at the weekend and it was a win. Talk us through the, the game against Nottingham. Yeah, it was uh, Yeah, pretty pleased with the win. We had a, bit, a few disruptions in the week with uh, a couple of players dropping in and out of the squad. Um, we've had an emergency loan sign-in that, that, that came through and um, was supposed to be a travelling reserve on the Wednesday. Then the Wednesday night he was, he was on the bench and by Thursday, Thursday morning he was starting so yeah a couple of um a couple of disruptions to the to the to the prep but you know, really pleased with the win and uh pretty pleased that we got the week off as well this week to uh to be able to reflect on the 100 and, and also to recover from it phil so just if we talk a little bit about how the start of the season has gone for you because we've we, we touched on it a little bit last week and how every every club's slightly different in in their approach to this year and obviously with with everything that's gone on in the past past year with covid and and squads and furlough how has that affected your year personally? But also from a club's perspective, how's the squad changed? Because we we see stories and we see stories. I'd just like to know from you personally, sort of how that squad's changed and how your year's actually been for you from a personal point of view. Um, where do you want me to start? I suppose I'll, t- I'll start with, with my own personal year. It, it's been a tough one because um, I'm sort of missing the routine of, of, of rugby life, really, has, has been quite difficult. Um, you know, you, you, you know that we work week to week, month to month, season to season, and to have pretty much a full season missing there has, has been really tricky. Um, add to that the furlough stuff. You know, it's great that we were able to to to, to tap into the government funding on eighty percent, but you know, my outgoings didn't go down to eighty percent; they stayed at hundred. So, yeah, I had to keep myself busy, a few different jobs in different factories, and set up a little coaching business on the side to keep going. And then also to add to that, some homeschooling as well with the kids. So, yeah, it's been a mad year. Um, it's been it's been really tricky trying to you know keep on it with the rugby and and I think there was a lot of doubt actually whether or not this season would have started. Um, you know, if you'd asked me at Christmas, I would have said no, nah, it's not going to happen. And uh, I'm pretty pleased to be proved wrong. Um, even right up to that, you know, the first game that we had against um, 
against Bedford, I was half expecting somebody with a high vis to come on and, and tell us to get off the pitch and, you know, it ain't going to happen. But yeah, luckily it, it did. And uh, it's nice to have a bit of normality back now. When did you actually find out about sort of that, that first game? Because there was, there was a lot of rumours going around. Were they rumours or were they rumours? And nobody was really sure. Yeah, I think um, I think that was that was part of the problem with with what made it so tricky. You know, the whole year was Pave sort of touched on it a lot last week about the lines of communication and what you can tell the lads and what you can't tell the lads. And the trouble is, that there's no secrets in rugby. Is there? Someone's going to talk, and then uh, unfortunately, with the grey areas, you you start to colour it in yourself, don't you? And uh, yeah. in five minutes of something happening, an announcement being made or not being made. You know, WhatsApp groups are on fire. Lads are on the phones to each other, and uh, yeah, there's 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 stuff going out. So we we kept getting told what was that we were going to have a decision on the Monday, then it was going to be the Friday, and then it got pushed back to the Wednesday, and, and it just went on for weeks and weeks and weeks like that. And it became a bit of a joke in the end, and you know, almost like gallows humour, I suppose. We're, we're quite good at that with rugby. It's just like oh, another another setback, another pushback, is it? And uh, yeah, we we sort of were able to laugh it off, but it it, it wasn't easy. Post talked a little bit last week about how uh, him and Gavin had kind of had to draw out these individual desires from the players, and that's how they sort of managed to battle through what was obviously a, a very tricky time with a lot, a lot of unknowns. Was there any sort of specific things that happened at Coventry to sort of try and unify that group and, and get you all on page for this championship season that seemed to be seemingly starting later and later and later? Yeah, I think um, initially when when lockdown first happened and the league stopped, we had a couple of weeks break and then we didn't know what was going to happen. So we were split into into mini groups with the new squad um, and then some challenges, some some team challenges were were handed out to us and we had to evidence them on WhatsApp just to try and keep everyone together, a bit of banter going and, and trying to get some some camaraderie flowing. Um, you know, the longer that went on, the more difficult it was to stay motivated on that, but the boys did it and, you know, it, there was there was some fun that was had there. Um, and then, yeah, there was there was some regular meetings that were, were, were taking place, phone calls, etc. And Roland was sending out a, a, a weekly email with, with updates or, or no updates as it, it quickly came to be a lot of the time um, just to try and keep us sort of on, on the ground with uh, and, and focus with rugby. But I think what I found was that it probably did need to be fairly individualised. Some lads just wanted to be left alone and, you know, they were happy to do their own thing. Other lads craved that, you know, that, that togetherness and needing to be around the boys. Um, it was, it was a hard time. I don't think anyone got it right, but I don't think anyone necessarily got it wrong either. It was just, just, we did what we did. Yeah. That sounds like it's just sounds tricky for everyone. So, when you when you get the finally get the good news, um, and now we're sort of four games in, you know you've you've got a new squad, you've got you've had a slight change in your coaching setup. There's been like Anthony Allen's left and James Casebrook's come in, and and Ross Stewart's moved into a different role. How's how's that all how's that all been this year? And your your squad age has reduced a little bit, so it's how's that for you as a, a senior player um, adapting to to the new challenges that Coventry have faced within the within their own squad? I think um, the new challenges for the for the club with with new players and new coaches and stuff, but it's not new for rugby to have that happening. The big challenge for us, I suppose, and for every club has been how do you deal with the with the COVID issue and 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 you know something that. We talk a lot about um, uh, team culture and club culture, etc. How do you get that when you're training in small groups? Mm. You know, we, we've been in a long time. And for the first two months, there was lads that were teammates of mine that I hadn't even spoken to because they were in a different group. And 
you know, you come in, you do your stuff, and then they're in the next group that's starting the cycle again, and you just don't speak to them. So that was probably the biggest challenge. The the stuff with the coaching and the new players, that's new for rugby. It happens, doesn't it? And, you know, like coming in and out, it's, it's, it's the other bit, the stuff off the field that we've, we've found challenging. But, you know, we've got a good couple of lads at the club now that are driving a lot of the, the off-field stuff and, and the, um, the camaraderie side of things. And we've got, uh, you know, trying to hold different um, team meetings and stuff like that and players' meetings to, to keep some of the, the crap going has, has been a challenge, but it, it is, it's flowing now and uh, we're getting there. Yeah, I suppose team socials in 2020-21 take on a very different dynamic to perhaps in the previous seasons that you've been involved with. It's, it's it's something that you don't even think about. It's just you take for granted massively of, you know, having a beer in the change room afterwards. You know, we've done that now. And for the first time in over a year, we felt normal. You know, like it's, it's, it's gone back to that. And um, yeah, certainly something that we took for granted. And I don't think I will be doing it when, when it does eventually get back to normal. I think all things considered, uh, Coventry's start to the season, now four games in, won two, lost two, currently sat in fifth. Obviously, I was here at the game at Castle Park and I think I had no fingernails by the end of it. A fantastic second half comeback by Covent. The Knights shading it by two points. Um, how has the reaction to the start of the season been? You know, is it is it positive at the moment? Room for improvement, a bit of everything? Um, yeah, we... we... What so, so the lads that have been involved at the club um, for a while, like myself, the, the mindsets had to change a little bit in that we've, I joined the club five years ago and we were on a journey, you know, this this journey that everyone's on, that we're individualised for Coventry and that, you know, we wanted to get our national one into the championship and, and then kick on. And, you know, we made some really big strides towards that, um, getting into the champ and, you know, second year into it last year. Um, got got some results together and you know really felt like actually the last game that we played was against Donny we started to turn a corner um, and then the season obviously finished the mindset for us is actually that journey's probably stalled a little bit and we've had to not fully reset but just take a step back and and, and let it you know let it run its course again um, I think the results and how and where we're at this at the season at the moment is probably about fair um, you know we 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 got it handed to us a little bit in that second half against Ealing um, which you know they fully deserve. It's not a surprise that they that they are where they are. They're churning out these big results. They turned over Saris and won the Trail Finders Cup in pre-season, which everyone you know watched the results for and um, were interested in. Um, yeah, we're just we're, we're happy that that we're we're up and running with uh, with the squad. We're happy that we've got some wins and you know we're competitive. Um, I think for most people watching Coventry's form of last year, and obviously you've been a, a big part of it, sorry, not even the last year, the last few years, I think it is obvious that it looks like a club with an upward trajectory. You've consistently had very strong fan base, a strong following for a championship side, the off the field stuff in terms of the uh, the business that you generate through the uh, non-rugby activity is significant as well. All the sort of things that should be commended for in a club and obviously all the things that actually get impacted more by COVID because they are all things that require those crowds of people. Do you think then, and this is perhaps a bit silly to say that the the, the pandemics has it altered that sort of three to five year plan or just just slowed it? What what do you think the uh, the outlook looks like for the net for the future for Coventry? I think uh, so. Where we were on the field was we you know we were accelerating pretty quickly and the club was keeping up you know, with with the ambitions of the squad and, and with the rugby side of things, like you said, there's a big business as well attached to Coventry. We've got 
you know, a great fan base. And it feels right, and it is right, that we are a championship club. Um, and why not be want, you know, wanting to be ambitious and, and go higher? I think it probably will stall everyone's business plans, won't it? And, um, you know, we're, we're really lucky that we've got somebody who is able to steer us in the right direction, John Sharp, off the field and on it as well. So, yeah, he, you know, he's been a massive part for us. He's been a you know, complete saviour for the club not just in COVID times, but in previous times as well. And, um, you know, like I say, we're dead lucky to have him there. Yeah, just just touching on John Sharp. And obviously I'm I'm from Coventry and I've got a lot of, I grew up at that rugby club and I've got a lot of time for it. Um, Sharp's involvement as a Coventry person, you know, just explain to people that don't understand. It's, it's easy for me to say because I'm from there, but you've, you've dropped into Coventry from the outside. And try and explain to people what it means to play for Coventry and the role it plays within the local community because it's it's pretty it's a pretty big a big big club within the within the city yeah so we had this conversation last week didn't we that actually when you talk to people who are from Carl and um careful <laughs> they, they might have moved away they're always dead proud of, of the fact that they're from Coventry and as an outsider looking in and I had been looking in at Coventry because um you know I've got family in the area I lived in Leicester and played for Nuneaton and got mates that live there I was a bit like what are you proud of like it's it's, it's a city fine but it's a bit of a dump but actually coming here living in in the city uh with you know amongst the people it's not at all like it's, it's a really special place and it's hard to actually say what it is but i get it like, i get what people are proud of from being from coventry it's a huge sporting city huge sporting city and it's got so much history with that sport but also you know everything that's gone on with 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 the city itself with everything that happened in the war being flattened taking one for the team you know that's all part of this this culture that we've got, you know, ingrained in the city that it, it sort of then flows through the rugby club and everyone, you know, to a man at the club who who comes to us will say how proud they are of, of the club, but how proud they are of the city. And that's something that Sharpie definitely drives. You know, we've got a big sign outside the change room that says your city, your club, your city, your city, your club, whichever way around it goes. But, you know, it, it's true. It is the city club. It's our city. It's our club. We, you know, we're proud of it. Yeah. So just touching on that, so I, I know from previous years when when Roland first first came involved and when you first jo- joined Cov, um, it was trying to re-engage the current group of players with the city. And you mentioned earlier about team challenges in COVID. I just wondered if maybe you can touch on your your challenges that you had sort of previously pre-COVID times, and have you got any sort of good stories about about what those were? <laughs> yeah. So. Um... So to try and connect with the city, uh, one of our first tasks as a as a team, actually, so the first year when Roland came in, was to do a bit of a, a treasure hunt around the city, a bit of a rat race um, that where we're split into teams. We were given a clue. You had to run to the to the to the clue and uh, in the city, take a photo outside of it, outside outside it, and the fastest team won. We got some money at the end of it, sent spent to spend on the piss or whatever. The first year that we did it, um, I think it was the city's uh, pride, uh, pride Week. Right. Uh, so as we're all running around, I think a lot of the locals thought we were also involved in Pride, which <laughs> yeah, some wolf whistles and stuff like that, going into pubs, trying to get people to buy drinks as part of one of the challenges. And it just sort of became that. So actually, we, the rugby club got lost a little bit in the pride, in, in the pride marches and the, and the, the festival that was going on on that weekend. Um, but yeah, it was de- it definitely made for uh, for an eye opening experience for some of the some of the lads that have not been to the city. And uh, yeah, they, uh, definitely uh, showed them around a bit. 
I can just see, because uh, obviously Rob Knox is a, a cobbler, I've just got a vision of, of Knocker just running around, loving life, with, with pride going on. Yeah, definitely. I do love some of these ideas that uh, management at uh, championship clubs have. I know that going back a few years, someone that you know as well, uh, Gully, Adam Kettle, told me a story that a former CEO at Donny had suggested to the players that they go down to the Lakeside Shopping Centre in Doncaster on a Saturday morning to try and sell season tickets and Kettle had quite loudly pronounced that if we sell any effing season tickets down there on Saturday morning I'll buy 10 myself and uh, they all have to move on I don't know how successful that was but it's good to hear that uh, uh, the that that cov identity that lads feel uh, we had Will Owen here at Castle Park for uh, for a couple of seasons and he was my housemate and yeah absolutely loved the city and uh, having not been too familiar with the place myself uh, uh, I guess I didn't get it, but it's nice to see that that, that rich identity is flowing through the club. Um, you've had plenty of success in your time at Coventry. One of the big ones, I guess, notably would be the the promotion from National One. Where does that uh, sort of list in your your uh, rugby achievements in your career, Phil? Uh, yes, it's, well, it's at the top. Um, you know, I played a, a long time. I played eight seasons at Bedford, and we were near. We were the nearly team for a, for a number of those years. You know, we never won anything tangible. We won. You know, we won the hearts, as cheesy as it sounded, of the rugby public a lot of the time. But we were often uh, gallant losers, and and that was something that sort of grated with me a little bit. Coming to Cov, we had a clear um, plan that we wanted to get out of that league, and and actually to to win the the league and win something tangible definitely um, definitely sits up there. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, and one of the questions that I've written, that I have a habit of these shows of writing loads of questions and paying no attention to the ones we get going. So uh, here's one that I've written down. Uh, the championship sort of forged a reputation for producing real high quality, particularly front row players. I can name sort of in the last few years from, from our club alone, the likes of Tom Francis, Will Griff, John Paul Hill, who played here, have gone on to sort of now premiership and international honours. Who would you class as maybe some of the toughest scrummaging front row forwards that you've come across in your time at uh, Cobb, Bedford and, and Rotherham, of course? Um, to, to be honest, it, every scrum that you hit in the championship is tough. And that's not a cop-out answer. You know, every team wants to pride themselves on having the best front row, the best pack, the best scrum in the league. You know, we've had some great battles over the years with, with Donny and... You know, Pirates, Paves was, was always a pain in the ass to play against and, um, or, you know, all the lads that we've we played there. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one to say because, you know, there's just so much quality that, that runs through every team and, uh, and, and you know, lots of lads, like you say, have, have, have played in this league, sort of earned a few stripes and then, you know, kicked on in, into the Prem and, and really not looked out of place as soon as they've stepped in there. But Phil, in terms of sort of, so we weren't, not individuals, but, how how do the rivalries change? Because obviously, when you you play at Bedford, there's there are different rivalries to when you play at Cough. And I suppose that emo the emotional side of it, playing for playing against different teams and different players, is different at different clubs, isn't it? I know that because I've played for a lot. But it's you know over the years, sort of what have been your your your, your biggest rivalries at, at each club? I suppose um, that's a good question. I was actually thinking about this this week when I was thinking about all the games that I played and actually which ones I remember the most. Yeah. Um, at Bedford, we always used to love or hate, I should say, playing against Pirates. You know, that was always a big, that was always a big game for us. And it was it was a rivalry that kind of like we'd have the result, then the next game you would. And there was no like, it was, you know, it was always it always felt like a big occasion, it always felt like we we're gonna go there for a big scrap and it was gonna be a close, 
you know, game and and there was a lot of hatred between a lot, you know, between the players at, at stages. Well, I, I remember vividly because uh, that, that went on for a few years when the playoffs were in. So the, the top eight and then it changed to the top four and we always seemed to play each other. And I can remember, I always used to go quite hard with Toops personally. Um, and then I remember walking off the pitch at, at Goldington Road and well, I was at the start of the game and we kind of looked at each other. We're getting on a bit and we sort of said, should we just leave each other alone now? We're like, yeah, mate, let's just leave, let's get, and we both said, let's get, let's get after the youngsters. And we both like look, looked at each other, just had a laugh. But it was a, it was a fierce rivalry for sure. And it was one that you look back on really fondly. Yeah, definitely. And like, uh, yeah, I've, you know, played some great games there. I remember being, uh, you know, the first game that Bedford had won in the, in the Southwest playing full 80 minutes down at, at Camborne then, the style of what it was. And yeah. Uh, a thrilling 6-3 win to Bedford where, uh, you know, we played in on a quagmire that was probably inside a windsock, you know. It was just really <laughs> really down there, didn't it, all the time. Uh, they're sort of moving on to Cough, sort of like, where where, where are you right? I suppose it's Bedford, isn't it? That's that's a big one. Yeah, like, we had two years in, in that one, so Mosley was a big one. Yeah, of course, yeah. For us, and uh, especially in the first year when it was a bit more even um, with, with the squads. The second year, we probably kicked on and we're, we're, we're too strong for them, but definitely the first year was... You know that, that that's one of the games actually that stands out for me in my hundred games already for Cov. That that first year against Mosley at home, we had a huge um, fan base there coming to watch. Um, you know, it, it was a really close game that we won. Um, so so yeah, obviously that that that's that's a game that's a a, a a club that goes back in a lot you know with history a long time. But yeah, I think probably it'd be Bedford now that Cov versus Bedford, which has picked up probably again from from a few years ago from when. Covering the champ last time, there was always a bit of a rivalry between the two. Geographically, I suppose, are pretty close, and uh, yeah, it's 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 one of those that they, they share a lot of DNA together as well. Both clubs have been through some money troubles in the professional era, not quite got there, you know, almost gone bust and and survived those those times, and you know, they've they've got fan base as well, both of them. And, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's always a good good game against them. Uh, you, you touched on there, obviously, some of the rivalries going back uh, the seasons. What do you think or what would you class as some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the league since when you first uh, first entered it? Well, yeah. well, my first game was about, was I was 18 and I played for Rotherham, still at school. Um, God, you know, a bit of a blur now back then, but I think there were 16 teams in the league. It was called National One. And then had a couple of years away from 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 Rotherham. Then when I went away to, to to be in the academy at Leicester, I came back still in National One with sixteen teams. And then um, I think it, it almost felt like overnight they they decided it was going to be a twelve team league and four were getting relegated. And uh, you know off they go sort of thing. And and yeah, it's it's changed that way. A lot more professional now. More teams are going full time, and um, as a result of that, more players then are, are able to make the step up and use it as a bit of a springboard. But not just players, but coaches as well. You know, you see a lot of coaches that have, have coached in this league and, and gone on to bigger, better things, or still at bigger, better things. And um, you know, there's some of the main changes. But yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think the emergence of some teams as well that are coming into it. You know, some of the less traditional ones, you know, like Ealing, for instance. You know, when I first played in the league, I wouldn't have even told you where Ealing was, let alone thinking that they're going to be, you know, perhaps on the brink of being in the Premiership now. Um, yeah, so you know, loads of changes and, you know, just a few of those. And uh, now, uh, oh, so, go on, Billy. Yeah, so I was just going to just touch on sort of professionalism and part-time and you've, you've done a, a fair amount of the both. So 
how has that been? So, so managing your time as a part-time player, semi-professional at Bedford, and then full-time with Cov, you know, what's, what is the right way to do it? And, you know, obviously it's, there's, there's different models at different clubs. So it's just like, you've obviously played for those two that stick to mind. And then Rotherham, like how, how, how's that been? Um, I think more, I think more about your personal development field. So sort of, you're thinking post rugby, being able to combine the two and you, you see the other side to life outside of professional sport. I think uh, I've, I've always had an ambition to play higher. And I think that just because I was at a, a semi-professional club or, you know, worked on the side didn't mean that I wasn't being um, ambitious with, with what I wanted to achieve on the rugby field. It just meant that there was an opportunity there for me to go and earn some extra money and to put some more bows to my string. So I did. Yeah. You know, we trained Monday, Tuesday, Thursday evenings. We did Monday, Tuesday, Thursday mornings in the gym together and, is just what we did, you know, like work all day, go go to training. I mean, looking back, it, it must have been so hard. Mm. I don't know how I managed it, but we, you know, I did. Um, I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way because there was some lads in that squad that were not doing anything in the days, whether they, you know, they were doing bits of extra training and, and then, you know, coming together for the team stuff at night. But whether whether or not that would have enhanced my rugby chances, I don't know. Um, but certainly, yeah, I, I feel like, it rounded me more as a person getting a bit more life experience and also the jobs that I've had working in education it's helped me buy in more even more so to the town or to the city that I worked in you know when I, worked, when I was at Bedford I worked in the local schools and it was nice seeing kids or you know that I'd, I'd coached or that I taught in the week then come down to Goldenstone Road on a Saturday and support us or you know having conversation they come up to me on a Monday morning and say oh well played so at the weekend or they usually didn't say well played. They'd usually say, you know, say something negative when we had lost. Um, or my dad said, you were rubbish at the weekend. Your dad can come and tell me. Can't. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it, it sort of it really helped me buy into, buy into the town or to the city even more. And same, same when I was with Cov, you know, it's just another, you know, another set of people to, to engage with, I suppose. And I, I used the fact that I was Phil Bolton, the rugby player in the town or the city, to my advantage to get the job. So, you know, what, why not? I think what, what you've just said typifies to me as someone sort of observing and who has observed a lot a lot of championship rugby is it just highlights the different stories within the league. And we talked about this with Paper that, that there are so many clubs with slightly different uh, models, slightly different uh, ambitions and slightly different means of doing things, um, yet all competing in this this fascinating competition that, that, that we all love and that uh, that we believe has has some fantastic value to, to the game up and down. Um, in, in terms of, I'm going to ask an expansive question here and, and Gully, I'd be really keen to see your thoughts. I know we did a little bit of it last week, but in terms of the, the champs development and where it can go and, and where its future is, what, what do you think are, are the key things it needs? Is it, is it as simple as it just needs better funding or, or, or is there more to it? I think for me, what they can't do is get rid of promotion and relegation from the from the Premiership. I think that that is something that makes you know promotion the, the fact that you're going to get promoted or the fact you're going to get relegated makes teams stronger and it prepares them you know for for the next season if if and when they do get get promoted. You know this is such a tough league. We talk a lot about in in professional sport and in rugby and it gets banded around like the the pyramid you know how the structures set out with the international team at the top and then the prem then you've got the champ and then the community game falls underneath that and to me I, I don't think it should be looked at as a pyramid because it's it's it, 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 it it's the top looking down then it feels like to me it feels like it's the bottom supporting the top 
And really, I think it probably should be looked at as more like um, more like an ecosystem, you know, that everything supports everything within that ecosystem. And like, you know, in nature with ecosystems, if you take something out of it, there's going to be an effect somewhere along the line. And it might not be straight away. You know, it might not, it might, the effect might not happen there and then. It might take two, three years. But I think if they take away promotion and relegation, then that's going to have a massive effect on this whole ecosystem of rugby. Um, and we'll start to see that probably with the international team suffering and the quality of premiership suffering. Um, you know, you look at the international team over the last 10 years, I, I don't know what the stats are, but I bet there's a huge percentage of players that have played for an, for a championship club that have gone through the grind every week and, you know, have earned, earned that place in that squad because of the journey they've been on in the championship. So take that away. Just It just, it just scares me where that's going to leave rugby as a whole. Love that. I think that's such a that comparison or the the analogy to it to an ecosystem. I think I think so so interesting and uh, yeah. Um, uh, unless you've got something to add to that to that gully, I don't think I can add to that, Phil. That was outstanding. <laughs> but it's um, it's it, it's got me really thinking, and it's you're right, mate. It's it, it's it's a scary thought if it was to to go. Just just yeah. To- People say, oh, you know, maybe the championship's undervalued or whatever. It's not. It's not undervalued. It's not undervalued by me. It's not undervalued by all the players that have played in it, the teams, the supporters. It's just undervalued by a very small select people. Yes, it needs funding, some extra funding. We've we've been through the mill with that. We've had, you know, cuts, promises of, of certain things that haven't come come out with the loans, the grants or whatever. But, you know, it's still there. It's still fighting. There's still an appetite for it. So somebody just needs, someone somewhere needs to, you know, hit the button and, you know, let's kick on now. That's brilliant. Phil, thank you so much for your time today and coming on the episode. Enjoy the week off and uh, I wish you the very best uh, for the season there at, at Bucks Park in Coventry. Well, thanks guys and you know thanks for everything that you're doing as well for the champ because it's uh, it's great to have this this advert out there and uh, yeah let's hope we're successful on this as well. Cheers Phil. You're listening to the Championship Clubs podcast with me Michael Casey and Ben Gulliver. Check us out on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter and like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Welcome back and for the second part of today's show, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Peter Lydon. Peter, of course, has had a very enjoyable time in the Championship, firstly with London Scottish onto Ealing and now is pulling up trees with French pro D2 side Rouen. Pete, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Always good to talk with the champs. So, yeah, cheers for having me. Uh, checking down the form tables, not a bad few weeks for everyone. Um, last few wins uh, going well. How's, how's the season going so far? And um, yeah, it's been it's been good recently since sort of the turn of the year. Um, I think we we started quite slowly. Um, we had quite a lot of recruitment. I think brought in twenty three new players or so. Um, and obviously with with coronavirus, we had quite a lot of cases in preseason, so that kind of disrupted our preparation. So uh, we kind of started the season a bit slowly, but as of the sort of turn of the year, we've been we sort of turned our form around. Um, sort of got our home form up, which is very important in France. So I think we've won seven out of our last eight home games um, and sort of gradually pulled ourselves away from sort of relegation battles. So um, we have a game away in Bézier this week um, and then we're home to Montmartre next week. And if we can get a win there, we kind of put a bit of gap even more between us and the relegation. So, so yeah, no, it's been good. And- yeah, so Pete, just, just sort of how we compare sort of like the English, English setup and and the similar levels. Um, when did you sort of get the contracts agreed and everything with Rouen? And then how, how, how did they navigate that through 
through the COVID situation? And when did you find out you were playing and how, like how many, when did you get started and all that side of it? Um, it was all pretty crazy, to be honest, because I still had another year on my contract at Ealing. Um, so when coronavirus hit, um, I was, I'd actually found myself back in the team at Ealing. So it kind of came at a bad sort of time. I kind of wanted to keep playing because I was kind of in good form and was and was playing. So, um, but yeah, then coronavirus hit. I went back to Ireland just to sort of be out of London and just get back in the countryside and stuff. And it was then that I was just sort of, I knew I had another year to go. Um, my, my other year or my previous year had been a bit frustrating, even though I then had managed to get back in the team. So I was just sort of thinking about sort of what I wanted and, uh, the op- the option came through from France um, to come to Rouen um, when I spoke to Richard Hale and it sounded like quite a good project um, and I'd always kind of I'd, I'd played in France previously so I'd always kind of had it in my head that I would quite like to come back um, so I sort of talked it through for quite a while um, and then just sort of decided that yeah it was it seemed like the right time to, to head over there so um, obviously the coronavirus did make it a, a lot harder like in terms of in terms of moving stuff over um and i'm still to be honest i'm still i don't have half my stuff like over here a lot of it is back in london haven't been able to pick it up so um it did make it a lot harder sort of the transition across but um but on the whole i think it was it was a good decision for for me and, and my career so um pretty happy that i sort of took the took the plunge because i could have just sort of waited out the lockdown and then just done my second year or my third year at ealing but the second part of my contract so um so yeah no i think it was on the whole it was a good it was a good move yeah and then obviously you've come from what is arguably the the most professional setup in in the championship potentially um in in some of the prem clubs as well so how 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 has that differed for you uh, over there uh, compared to what you were what you used to with ealing and and become accustomed to in, in england yeah, um, I mean, it was it was a massive change. Uh, obviously, I knew the kind of the French way from before, but having done three years at Ealing, where, like you say, it's it's a it's a top class facility, and I mean, training training really is like much higher than match intensity, so you're really getting put through your paces. So, yeah, uh, it was it was a change coming to Rouen, but I think that was part of what Hilly wanted from me coming in was to sort of try and bring bring those kind of standards of training and try and sort of bring it into the French system because with Rouen, because they've come up so quickly, they've still got quite a lot of guys who would have been playing Federal 1, Federal 2 and are sort of in that sort of semi-professional mindset. So sort of a lot of the recruitment was sort of edging towards bringing in that full professional environment and standards and training and sort of work rates, stuff like that. So um, that was kind of the thing that he was saying to me to bring in. So I mean, like you say, coming from coming from Ealing, where where the standards are pretty high in training, um, it was just sort of to bring that into Rouen. So, um, like to think of sort of did that a little bit, but uh, I don't know. I'd say Hilly would have to have to be the one to give you the answer to that. But um, yeah, we um, obviously in, in in the championship, there's a, a lot of eyes looking on the Pro D two more guys like yourself making the way over there. And as you referenced, you of course started your professional career in France with the, uh, with in Paris with Stade France. Uh, have you did you notice sort of the the, the D two has become sort of more prominent and more a fixture within French rugby from now? Uh, sorry, now from your first from where it was with your first uh, spell in France. Um, it's a good question. Um. I think when I was when I was first in France, I had the kind of impression of Pro D2 as being just 10-man rugby, scraps, fights, just a horrible place to play rugby. 
um, because I actually had the option to go to a Pro D2 team after my year at Stad. Um, and at the time, I kind of viewed it as kind of, mm, don't know if I want to go to that kind of league. And then I had the offer from London Scottish and I went for that rather than Pro D2. Um, and sort of a lot of people have asked me of sort of the similarities between the two leagues. Um, and it's funny, like it's kind of, I think, I feel like Pro D2 is a lot more physical, like the sort of packs and some of the, the size of some of the players that you get in this league are completely different to the championship. But having said that, I would say that the championship is a much quicker league in terms of the ball in play, just the speed of the game is a lot quicker. Um, so yeah, it's it's a funny one, like just... They're just, it's its crazy to think that like Pro D2 is where it is and the champ is where it is, even though they're both second division rugby in two big rugby playing countries. So yeah, that, that's um, really, really interesting comparison because I think, I think sometimes, and Gully be interested in your thoughts on this as well, that people think that, that the championship can be sometimes quite an attritional league you know you see a lot of as spoke about this with phil earlier like front row forwards coming out of the division and you talk about academy boys coming in and you know getting that sort of real uh, experience but actually we, when you've you've had the comparison of both you maybe argue it's, it's a quicker maybe sort of league that's more of a ball playing type of division than than, than perhaps the d2 is yeah it's it is interesting i've i've played a couple of pre-season games against sort of similar level over the years and like you say, the, the physical battle is huge when you get when you just cross the border and play the French D two team. So it is an interesting comparison. I think it's a little bit difficult for me to to judge because I've not not played in it. But I'd, I'd be interested to know like where where sort of a, a top end sort of champ team would sit in in D two. And I suppose Pete, you're you're the man to answer that because you've you've got the most recent experience. And you know how, how would how would an Ealing cope in in that league and and you know, or how would a, a Bedford a team that is semi-professional cope within a league that is full-time in inverted commas over in in France? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think I'd like to think Ealing would probably be there thereabouts at the top of the league. Um, I think the thing with Ealing is that they pride themselves on having a very high tempo, quick game, but also having that physical side in that they'll a lot of like big carriers just winning the game line and just have playing quick ball. So I feel like Ealing would probably do quite well in that they could run teams off their feet, but also stand up to them physically. Um, so I feel like teams like Ealing, Sarri's sort of pirates as well would probably do quite well. I feel like sides like Bedford who are more sort of your classic friends, Jouet, Jouet would, I feel like when when the weather is good, they could probably run teams off the pitch and just moving the ball around, their sort of structure and attack would cause a lot of problems because sort of the the attack in, in Pro D2 is quite like, it's just very random and like, it's quite easy. If, if you have a good attacking structure, I feel like it's quite easy to break down teams because you can find a lot of lazy front five forwards who are just sort of in the middle of the pitch. Like you can end up with a, an entire like backline on one side of the pitch and just forwards the whole other side. So I feel like a team like Bedford who moved the ball around well would do well when the weather is good. But then on the other hand, once you get into the winter months where it gets wet and you get your typical sort of typical champ rugby games where it's 10-man rugby and you need a good mall, good scrum, it's times like that where most Pro D2 sides, their pack is their their go-to. They've got 
gnarly Georgian forwards, second rows, like big Islanders, and they'll, that's just what they love. They love just trucking it up, keeping it tight. And I think that's where teams like Bedford and slightly smaller teams, Hartbury, would potentially struggle more. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, I, it's really hard to say. Like, I'd love if they did like a almost like a BNI Cup, but between the champ and Pro D two, it would be it would be very interesting to see the kind of results. And it would be great for rugby as well, just getting like that travel across, like teams being able to come over to France and play, and vice versa. So, I'd, I'd love if they did that in the future. I don't know whether it'd be logistically possible, but. Um, but I'd, I, it would be very interesting just to see the, the different styles of rugby and how they go up against each other. Could be something for us to pitch if this, uh, this podcast really really takes off in the future. Uh, Pete, I'd be quite interested to hear you. We've talked there about sort of the, uh, the comparisons in, in the styles of rugby. I suppose it's a little bit hard for you to answer this, obviously, because your time uh, with Ruan has been COVID times, if you like. But have there been... Any differences that you've really noticed off the field? I know that sort of for the new year, the Fed One top flight is going to pretty much become a fully professional division. So that's three pro leagues uh, in France uh, very soon. Um, how does the whole sort of, uh, I guess, uh, the, the system work and how does it compare? In terms of away from rugby? is it? Or? Yeah, so I mean, I, I suppose I, I consume a lot of rugby media and I see like the TV deals and I see things like the crowd sizes. And I, as I say, I, I accept that you're answering these uh, questions having maybe not enjoyed a normal season of D2 rugby. But from what you've maybe heard from coaches and, and from teammates, uh, are there any sort of other key differences or any other noticeable changes from your time playing championship? Yeah, I mean, I think you speak of TV deals. I saw a thing in the paper the other day talking about the the new Canal Plus uh, deal with Pro D2 and the top 14. And when you actually break down the numbers, the TV deal for Pro D2 is only 2 million less than what it is for the Premiership. So you're talking a second division comp getting 2 million less than what the Premiership in England is getting. So it's just, it's worlds apart in terms of like, the coverage that it gets, like all our all our games are live on TV, no matter who's playing. They pick one, they have one prime game on a Thursday night, um, one on a Sunday, I believe, and then the rest are all Friday, but they're all televised. So like that just for like, like even just for a guy like me, like Irish, a lot of my mates back in Ireland like to sort of try and watch my games whenever they can. And when I was playing the championship, you might get one game a year, possibly two on Sky. Um, and that would be it. Other than that, there was very little coverage of it. Whereas over here, they can literally watch every single game I play. Um, so it is just worlds apart. And then when you talk about crowds as well, like we were lucky enough for the first probably three or four games, we were playing in front of reduced attendances. So it wasn't completely behind closed doors. Um, and even at that, some of the clubs were pushing the old boundaries of what of what reduced attendances were. I mean, I didn't play in it, but the boys boys played Perpignan away, I think first game of the season. And they said there was about six or 7,000 at it. So it's just like, it was sort of do what you want. So... Um, but we played against Angoulême away and you're playing again in front of sort of four or five thousand in like a lovely, lovely stadium. So um, that's the other thing as well. It's just like the infrastructure the clubs have um, is just like it's worlds apart from the championship. I mean, every week you're playing at a nice ground, usually fully surrounded stands, like lovely, lovely grounds to play in. Um, and I think there are there's regulations about how clubs spend their money. They have to they have to break it down into keeping the infrastructure, like the stadium facilities, stuff like that. 
so they have to have it at a certain level um so yeah like in terms of that side it is just it's a different league completely um and it, it sort of makes it more enjoyable to play in when you're playing in front of those kind of crowds and in those stadiums so yeah and then i suppose interestingly another comparison that i'd be interested to get your take on i think it's i think from my involvement here at doncaster knights and what i've seen across the league we get quite a lot of very high quality irish and scottish lads playing in the champ and now there's an argument to be said that that's because, you know, in Scotland, you've got the two pro sides over in Ireland, just the four. Um, and, you know, if, if, if those players maybe at that time aren't, aren't quite ready to make the, that step up from academy, where do they go? So do you, I, I, we've taught there, obviously, there's quite a few things that perhaps the English system could learn from the French. Do you think that there's something that the English system could perhaps lead on in the other side, in the Celtic nations? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, like you say, like with with your Irish players, your Scots, your Welsh, where they're big rug. There's a lot of rugby being played in those countries, but there is limited teams for the players. So, like, I mean, for me speaking as an Irish guy, like, there's like you say, like guys do their academy and then they don't get the opportunities they feel they deserve in the first team, and a lot of them just decide, right, well, I'll just go get a job, play amateur, and just sort of fade away. Whereas I think if you're prepared to sort of get a little bit uncomfortable, go outside your comfort zone, go to England, go to France and play at like a pretty good level. And then if if you do well, you can come back. Like there's always a there's always a route back if you play well enough. So and also just purely the fact of like living in a different country. Like I'm lucky that I've lived in London, I've lived in Paris and now in Rouen, like just from a life experience point of view, like the amount of stuff that I've learned from there rather than just staying in my little cosy bubble in Ireland, I feel like it's a, it's a massive thing and, and more players should do it. So, um, And it goes beyond rugby. It's about being able to go out into the world and, and deal with stuff yourself, whether it's learning a language, whether it's like having to actively do stuff in your life for yourself, not relying on other people because you can just get mum and dad to cover you or whatever. Like it's just, it's such a big thing for me, just from a life experience point of view, just to break down your comfort zone and get out there. So I definitely think it is something for, for the Irish, Scots and Welsh to definitely get outside the bubble and, and do so. Yeah. I was just, just wondering, I've got quite interested in, in that. I've seen over the years, you've got like Gav Steenson that, Steno did it years ago. Tommy Hayes did it as well, and they've 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 come over here. They've 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 done them. You know, they've signed for a Plymouth Albion and Exeter, Rotherham. I think Steno signed at Rotherham originally. And it's is it something that's discussed as a so when you're in that academy in the Irish structure, and then you know you get the bad news or you, there's a there's a group of you, and it's like is it a, a conscious decision or is it a very individual sort of thing, or is it something as a group of people that that people look at is coming to England and France? I think I think now it's become more of a thing. I think when I was when I was that age, it was much less of a thing because there were less players over here doing it. I think if you look at sort of the numbers of Irish players that are playing in the championship and Pro D two now compared to sort of seven, eight, nine years ago, I think there'd be a massive increase now because sort of more people have done it. Whereas when I was coming through, it was very much a kind of, oh, you're going to go to England and try to do it there. Like, it's like, oh, Jesus, I don't know about that. Or like going to France, you're like, like you don't know French or you, like, it's going to be a completely different culture. You're still young. Like, how are you going to deal with that? You're going to have to deal with that and, and sort of breaking into professional rugby. But I think it's just, it's one of these things where you just got to be brave and you just got to put yourself into it. And, and yeah, maybe it doesn't work out, but, like you got to be there to tr- to try it. So 
um i think that's the thing like it's just about it's just about getting out there but um i think there are a lot more players doing it now so it's sort of it's more inviting because there's players for those guys to see and be like right well he's doing it so i'll do it whereas when i when i was there there was very few players sort of sort of out there um they all, like just from my own personal experience just haven't played against them at the weekend uh, robin copeland um so i back when was it seven eight years ago when i was coming out of school um i he was in my he was six years ahead of me at school so I just got into him and just was chatting to him because he just signed for Plymouth Albion. Um, yeah. So I just started talking to him and just asking him about his experiences. And I wasn't sure back then what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to sort of stay in Ireland and try and sort of make it in Ireland or whether to just get out of the system and try something new. Um, and he basically was sort of saying, look, give it a go. Like there's a lot more opportunities out here because there's more teams. So um, it was just, yeah, it's just ironic that I ended up playing against him last weekend after him sort of giving me the sort of help that he gave me. So, yeah, it was, it was good. It's interesting because like, from, from an English point of view, I'm sort of, I look at my, my path and, you know, you, I dropped out of the Saris Academy and you, you drop straight into the one below and you have your trials and there is there is that opportunity to bounce back. Mm. And it sounds like in Ireland, if you if you don't be brave and get, get over on the over the channel, then there's some very good rugby players being lost lost to the game and lost potentially to professional rugby and, and an opportunity for them individually. So it's it's really interesting how they all sort of differ and you know how that how that pathway works. And it's all very individual. We all know that. But it's 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 it is an interesting uh, an interesting sort of route people take. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So uh let's uh dive into some of your championship experiences. Then you came over first to to London Scottish and uh obviously had some uh some some fine times. Uh uh, in London with the with the exiles, talk us through some of your favourite moments with uh, with London Scottish. Yeah, like really enjoyed my time at London Scottish. It was a great club, um, but yeah, we had some we had some interesting years. I think it kind of probably went full circle in terms of in terms of how we got on. Um, when I first signed, we were we were up top sort of top three teams, made the playoffs. Um, we were unlucky against Worcester. We kind of ran out of steam really, um, but we sort of put it up to him for probably. 60 minutes into, into the second second leg and then they just pulled away so um the first year was first year was amazing like just being in london winning winning most of our games we had a great group of lads good coaches good atmosphere great socials stuff like that so um so yeah that was good um then the second year second year sort of it was it was an interesting year again as well we didn't really do as well as we kind of hoped um we lost, I remember we lost James Phillips, one of our second rows. He got picked up by, I think it was. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, so we lost him. He was, he was crucial for us just in the front five. Um, and that year was quite tough. Um, and then coming towards the end of that year was when we had the whole thing with the SRU, when the SRU were going to come in. And there was a lot of promises made that weren't kept. Um and then going into the third season, then we ended up with a ridiculously young squad. Like we, I think the average age of our squad was like 23 or 24. Um, and that was, that was a very tough year just in terms of playing championship rugby where you need, you need to have some experience. Um, but it kind of thinking back now, it kind of probably helped me sort of developing as like a bit of a leader, sort of finding yourself in that kind of environment where all of a sudden as like a 24, 25 year old, you're one of the more senior players, um, probably helped me out sort of looking back. Um, 
And also the, the, the thing that I found quite hard that third year as well was the fact that I signed for Ealing quite early in the season. I think it was probably around October time, probably. Um, so right. then to play the whole rest of that season, knowing that I wasn't going to be at Scottish. And that was also the year where Scottish were having slight financial problems and were slightly going towards like the semi-pro model. Um, so I was sort of in meetings where guys were being told, oh, look, you, you might not have a contract next year. And it kind of put me in quite a, I felt kind of awkward because I knew that I was sort of safe and secure, but some of my best mates were like properly in, in a in a bit of a pickle. So um, that was quite hard to sort of deal with and kind of try to make sure that I kept my standards good in training and in games and keep playing well for the rest of my time because like Scottish is a, is a club that means quite a lot to me. Um, I made a lot of great friends there and I like still speak to a lot of the, a lot of the backroom staff there and a lot of the fans and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, that was, those were three good years. And then obviously the move to Ealing was, was, was very different. It was a lot more professional, a lot more, they knew where they wanted to go. Um, and again, it was another, another three good years. Obviously there was some frustration in there as well, especially my last year, not playing as much as I wanted to. Um, but on the whole, it was it was a great experience and brought me on a lot as a player. And again, met a lot of, met a lot of cool guys, a lot of friends from there. So, so yeah, no. On the whole, it was it was six years in the champ that were really really enjoyable. What what I find fascinating, having um, not played for two of those clubs, Mike, <laughs> is that um, that is fascinating to me. That's, that it's the rivalries. We spoke to Phil Bolton about it earlier, about rivalries. Obviously, it's London Scottish, Richmond. Uh, were you guys in the same league at, the t- at that time? Yeah, I played, I think it was one... Yeah, my last year, Richmond came up. Yeah, so we had the two games against them. Yeah. And yeah, I just wondered, sort of from, from me, from the outside, how, how does it all work logistically for um, with trainings? And I know London Scottish are off-site sometimes, and, you know, and then Richmond. And, and are the clubs close? Obviously, they're close. They're on the same site, but... Is there much interaction with with the Richmond guys as players as well as the London Scottish guys? No. So my so my first two years at Scottish, we trained at the RAG, the Richmond Athletic Ground. So we trained there, but that was when Richmond weren't in the championship. And yeah. then my third year when the SRU came in was when we moved to Lensbury and we did all our training at the Lensbury. So there would be no crossover. Um, so we train there and then obviously we play our games at the RAG and they just alternate weekends. So whenever we were at home, Richmond would be away. Um, but then obviously it was weird then when we played Richmond because for the home game, we'd be in the home changing room and then for the away game, we'd be in the away changing room, which kind of made it a bit weird. Um, but then like in terms of the rivalry, I mean, that was the big one because obviously I played I played for Scottish when Welsh were in the league as well and obviously that was billed as a rivalry and Scottish against Ealing as well was kind of billed as a bit of a rivalry as well. But it never really those two games never really felt like it, but the Richmond one was was definitely the big one. Like we had we had a couple of former players come in and like show us like videos from back in the day where like they Richmond like Richmond kicked off and literally a guy's taking the ball and just a fifteen man brawl is broken out like first first play of the game. So that kind of showed the sort of importance of it to like the older boys. So um so yeah like it was always it was always nice playing in those even though I only got two of them. But uh yeah, I like to I like to have a bit of banter with some of the Richmond lads like Craig Trenier, who I who I played with at Ealing, like me and him go at each other about the old Richmond uh, Scottish rivalries. So that's no, good. It's good. Oh, and I suppose like Ealing, we we briefly spoke about it to bolts off off the record, and 
Ealing have a slightly different story and they've got slightly different rivals. This is, again, me looking from the outside, is that they've come through the leagues with, with Jersey almost at the same time. So there's sort of that natural rivalry over the years has built up. And then obviously when Hartby moved into the league. So there's, there's sort of three teams, and now Amtel are in it as well. The, the four teams in the champ at the moment have all come on a similar pathway. So they, they've got their rivalries that have, have been instilled over the years through their through their growth as a club and through their, through their success. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's the thing with with Ealing is obviously you have the London clubs, so you'll always have those sort of London derbies. But I think definitely the one for Ealing is Jersey, just because as you say, they came up through the leagues. There's always been just sort of nitty gritty games. I think Wardy and Wardy and Harvey Bill John have a bit of have a bit of beef between them. So um, it, they've always been the ones that have a bit of spice to them. So um, so yeah, no, but it just it makes it more exciting. Like when you have those kind of games, it just gives you something else to sort of get you up for them. So no, it's good. You you talked uh, a bit, Pete, about the the almost mixed emotions when the the Ruan deal came through because at that point you'd sort of played your way back in contention. You're going well with with Ealing. Um, have you been keeping an eye on the results this season? I mean, obviously, if you haven't, they're going pretty well. And uh, how do you think the uh, the season might pan out for the trail finders? Oh yeah, I, I still keep in touch with quite a few of the boys there. Um, and yeah, like I mean, they look like they're they're flying it at the moment. Um, yeah, I think it's it's going to be an interesting one. Um, obviously, like Saris, you're you're hearing chat of them bringing their England boys back in sooner rather than later. So it'll just be interesting to see how they how they deal with it mentally playing in the championship because like I, I was saying to a few of the boys like the week before the champ started and I saw them playing against Pirates and I actually wish you'd got me on this podcast before that because I would have called Pirates beating them um, because I just especially when I saw their team sheet because you look I looked at Saris and I saw when they when they started signing guys from the championship like you're like Harry Sloan Will Hooley players like this and that, to me, when I saw their team for Pirates, I thought, that's the game that you've got to start, guys, who've played championship. And when I say play championship, I've played a couple of years and know, know the crack because it's it's one of those away grounds where, like, they, like they're the favourites. Like, they're just... It's such a tough place to go and win, and you need guys who've been there before, know what it's like, know what the trip's like, know what it's like staying in the hotel down there, just getting to the ground, like just everything. And it, you might people might think that that's just bits that don't matter, but it, it does matter. And like, it just, it showed in that first game that like that Saris team was a good team. Like it had, what was it? Seven or eight internationals, a lot of well-established premiership players and, and Pirates have done a job on them. And it's great for the league. And, like it just it just goes to show that like there needs to be more there needs to be just more put into the championship because it is there's there's some very good teams there's some very good coaches there's some very good players like and it just it needs to get more more backing and more sort of support but I don't know we'll see that was the championship club podcast with Michael Casey and Ben Gulliver check us out on social media at champ clubs pod on Instagram and Twitter and subscribe and like our YouTube channel